1 John chapter 2. So we're going to finish 1 John today. And we're actually in verse 24, but I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 18. So I'm going to read 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And you can follow along. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore... Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made, the promise that he has made us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming." If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Father, we ask that you would take this gospel, Lord, that you have declared to be the power of God to salvation. Lord, take this gospel, transform us and change us. Lord, change our hearts Renew our minds and conform us that we would be a people individually and corporately conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus that you would be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. In John's second letter, 2 John, verse 5, John writes this, Now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have <clears throat> excuse me that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another not as though i wrote a new commandment to you but that which we have had from the beginning 
that we love one another. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Remember the words of God through Moses in Deuteronomy when God says, the greatest commandment, this is what Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And then he quotes also from the Old Testament that to love your neighbor as yourself is like unto it. So the command to love, the command to love God, the command to love our neighbor, the command to love one another, the command to love is not a new commandment. It's the commandment that we've had from the beginning. And he says, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Let love abide in you. The therefore, the word therefore in this verse links the thoughts in these verses. In the preceding verses, he talks about he who is a liar. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. But he who acknowledges the Son has also the Father. So who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he who denies Christ, who denies that Jesus is the Christ, does not have love abiding in him. For love to abide in you and for you to abide in love, the first and the foremost commandment, the first and foremost thing is that you love God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your strength. It is to love and obey God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so to love one another as he has loved us. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. It's recorded for us in John 13, 34. It's just as Jesus is wrapping up the Last Supper and they're getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will ultimately be arrested and taken away to be crucified. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. So love abiding in you is so much more than what the world understands. The world's confused understanding of love is so, falls so short of what the Bible tells us love truly is. And we're often caught up in this shallow understanding of what love is. But if we go to the scripture, we understand that when the Bible talks about love, when it talks about the love of God, when it talks about the love that is to abide in us and the love that we are to abide in, it is something so much more than what the world actually understands it to be. Love is defined by God, not man. Because God is love. John writes this over and over in this little epistle. We're going to see it as we continue to go through this letter. And John says, God is love. So love is more than an emotion. Love is more than, than acts of kindness that we might perform. The Bible says love is God. God is love. Before love is anything, love is a person. 
And love was personified to us in Jesus Christ. When God's love abides in us, we will love God, we will love His truth, and we will love one another as He loves us. Someone who is anti-Christ, someone who denies the Son, cannot abide in the love of God they cannot have the love of God abiding in them. Now that doesn't mean that people cannot show kindness or act in a loving manner. We can be kind, we can act lovingly, but that does not mean that we have love. So Paul writes this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Well, how can we give our bodies to be burned? How can we give all of our goods away if we don't have love? But yet, Paul says that we can do those things and not have love. And doing those things that appear to be loving, that appear to be kind, will profit us nothing because we have not love. If love is simply performing kind acts and giving sacrificially for others, if that's all love is, then love is something that anyone and everyone can do. But yet the Bible is very specific, and this is why John is writing this little letter. And he's reminding us that love is much more than those things. Love is actually a person. God is love. And this is what Paul is writing to to the Corinthian church, who was very spiritual, who had all kinds of spiritual gifts taking place inside and outside the church. And they were very proud of the miracles they could perform. And they were very proud of the gifts that they had that they could demonstrate to one another and to the world. And they were so proud of all these gifts and all this spirituality that they had in the name of Christ that they were fighting and fussing with one another. They were actually demeaning one another. They were lifting themselves up at the expense of other people and become arrogant and puffed up about all their spirituality. And Paul says, let me show you a better way. Let me tell you a better way. And this is what he, this is the context of this statement. Though I give my body to be burned, though I give my goods, bestow all that I have to the poor, but have not love, it profits me nothing. In other words, you can appear to be a very spiritual person. You can appear to be a very spiritually gifted person and not have love. Or we could go right to Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus himself says to his disciples and to those listening to him as he's teaching, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do great and mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I do not know you.
So before love is anything else, love is a person. That person is Christ. Love personified. God is love. And if God is love, and God dwells in us, abides in us, then love abides in us, and we abide in love. God is love, and if God does not dwell in us through faith in Jesus Christ, then all of our random acts of kindness will profit us nothing. Then John writes, if what you heard abides in you, what you heard from the beginning is the command to love, to love God and to love one another. What you heard and what is to abide in you is the love of God that dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. That abiding love is to be manifest as a true indication of Christ in you. This is why Christ reduced everything down to love. It's not that he said everything else doesn't matter. He's saying everything matters, but this is how everything is ultimately manifested and made known through love. Through our loving God and through our loving one another. Through our loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Yes, Hate is not inconsistent with love because to love God is to hate what God hates. You can't love God and love what God hates. So if we love God with all of our heart, we are going to hate those things that are contrary to God, those things that are opposed to God. We have to if we truly love God. And this is why John is writing, you can't say that you love God and hate your brother. If he's your brother, if he's part of God like you're part of God, if he's part of the body like you're part of the body, you, you can't love God and hate your brother. You can't hate him for any reason. If he's your brother, you can't hate him because his skin color is different than yours. You can't hate him because he's poor and you're rich or he's rich and you're poor. You can't hate him because he gets on your nerves because I would imagine if it were possible, we would get on God's nerves, don't you think? But God is not a man like us that he should lie. And God says that the love that he loves us with is an unconditional love. So even in your sinfulness, guess what? God loved you first. We're going to read that in this little letter too when we get to chapter 4. We're going to find out that God doesn't love us because we loved him. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Bible teaches that we love God because he first loved us. In fact, God gave us the very love that we have to give to him. 
we are able to love him because he poured his love into our hearts. And we are able now to love one another because he has put that love in us. And if that love abides in us, then that love must be made known through us and manifest in us. That abiding love is to be manifest as a true indication of Christ in you. Your walk, your talk, your trust is to be rooted and grounded in Christ and in his love. Love is the defining characteristic of the Spirit's fruit that the world is to see and taste through your life by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. Now you can go to Galatians 5.22 and and it says the, law, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's not that there are nine fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is. There's one fruit. And all of those are defining characteristics of that fruit. It's not I've got seven out of the nine, so I'm good. I'm over the 50% mark, so the scale's going to go in my direction. No. And this is why Jesus says, and this is why Paul writes, if you don't have love, you don't have anything. Because love is what ultimately will prove whether the Spirit dwells in us. And along with love, what does the fruit of the Spirit look like and taste like? It looks like love. It looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those are all things consistent with love. So there's only one fruit, but it is defined and characterized by these nine things that Paul lists there. It's kind of like when you bite into a, a nice, ripe, juicy apple or peach, and you have to describe someone, what, what does that taste like? And you say, well, it's sweet, and it's juicy, and it's... You begin to describe what this fruit tastes like. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in Galatians 5.22. He's describing what the fruit of the Spirit looks like as it comes out of our life. And the world is to see and the world is to experience and taste the reality of that fruit through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. So if the Spirit dwells in you, you as a branch abiding in the vine is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what the fruit of the Spirit tastes like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Does that mean I can never lose my patience? I hope not because I'm in big trouble. If that's what that means. Does it mean we, we never say anything unkind? Does it mean that we are never anything less than gentle? Does it mean we never have a bad day and, and, and forget what we have to be thankful for? Forget that we're to rejoice always? No, that's not what it means. We do all of that and more. Much, much more and much, much worse. 
But over the course of your life, over the course of time, just like a, a seed planted in the ground, you plant that seed in the ground, and over the course of time, that seed's going to sprout, it's going to grow into a tree, the tree's going to produce fruit. Over the course of time, we're going to see growth and maturity, and then we're going to see a manifestation of fruit. And it's something that we can see, it's something that we can experience, it's something that we can actually taste. So it is to be with your life. It's not that you change overnight, it's not, it's not that you never have a bad day, never have a bad moment, maybe a bad week, a bad month, maybe even a bad year. But what it does mean, and this is the promise of God, that those things will not endure in your life. Those things may come, but they will pass. What will be enduring in your life, what will define your life, are these things. And the greatest characteristic would be love. And God's grace, and God's life, and God's maturity will overtake and that is what will ultimately define you as one who has abiding in you the love of God and as one who abides in the love of God. And all of this because you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, He is dwelling in you by His Holy Spirit. And it is that Spirit in you, that life in you, that is bringing that increase, that manifestation of his life and of his love. So John writes, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you see that? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, that means the Father and the Son, will come to him and make their home with him. You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. As you abide in Christ and his love abides in you, his fruit abides in you. His fruit will be manifest through you. And you also abide in him and in the Father. And through that fruit, the Father, Jesus says, is glorified. And this is the promise that he gives to us eternal life. In John 17, as Jesus knows that he is getting ready to be arrested, he's going to be taken to be crucified, he prays to the Father. And in his prayer to the Father, he's praying specifically about those that the Father has given him. And listen to the prayer of Jesus recorded for us in John 17, verses 2 and 3. As you have given him authority over all flesh. This is Jesus praying to his Father, 
talking about himself, saying, Father, you have given me authority over all flesh, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus prayed that, not just for the men present with him, but he prayed that for all who would come to believe in him through their word. He's praying for all that the Father has given into his hand. And he says, all that you have given him authority over, all that you have given to him, these he will give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you know Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. This is the promise God has given. So to let love abide in you is to let the truth abide in you. It is to abide in and to know the only true God in Jesus Christ. For love to abide in you is for the truth to abide in you. That means that you are abiding in Him. That you know Him. And in knowing Him, you have eternal life. Then he says in verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So he's writing all of this because there are those in the church, around the church, associated with the church, who are trying to deceive the saints, who are trying to deceive the believers. And he's writing these words of assurance to them, saying, if, if you know God, if you know Jesus Christ, if you have love, if, if love abides in you, then you can know that you are abiding in love. If you are in Christ, then you know Christ is in you. Because they are aware of this picture Jesus painted, recorded for us in John 15, of the vine and the branches. And Jesus says, as the branch abides in the vine, so the vine abides in the branch. The life of the vine is in the branch. There is an interaction, there is a connectedness, there is a union there. And they become one. And if the branch is separated, cut off from the vine, then the branch dies. The branch can only live as it has union in the vine. And this is the picture John is giving us here. That love works both ways. The love of God flows into us. The love of God flows back out of us to God, but it also flows to those around us. And there is this flow of love to and from one another, to and from God. But it all originates with God. And he says, these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So John is writing, and his words in all of the scripture is given to us that we may have a knowledge of and grow in the knowledge of the truth. 
that we would not be deceived by those trying to deceive us. Deceivers have been trying to deceive from the beginning. This is exactly what happened in the garden. The serpent did not come into the garden and slay Eve and kill her. He came into the garden and he used his words and he deceived her. And this is still happening today all around us. And only the truth can set us free and keep us free from deception. So as in John's day, those trying to deceive us are using the scripture to try to justify their deception. And this is why we must know the truth. And this is the assurance that God has given us by his Holy Spirit. That is the anointing that we have received from him that abides in us. So look at this. Let's read 26 and 27 together. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. The anointing which you have received from him abides in you. The anointing which you've received from God that abides in you, that anointing is the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. Jesus told his disciples, recorded for us in John 14, 16, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Jesus said, I'm with you now, but he will be in you then. The same anointing teaches you. That is the Holy Spirit who is our teacher, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. John 14, 26. Listen to what Jeremiah wrote to Israel as a promise of the covenant, the covenant that God would establish with his people one day. Now Jeremiah is writing this 500 years before the birth of Christ. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. It's not that, God, that John is writing here saying you don't need teachers anymore. When he writes you do not need that anyone teach you, he's not saying that teachers are now irrelevant. He's reminding them that with the coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied 500 years before the birth of Jesus has now come. God has now put his truth in their minds, written it in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when we read his word, when we hear his truth, the anointing, the Holy Spirit that's in us illuminates that and gives witness to us that it is true. 
Now, what was happening in John's day, what was happening in the church, these false teachers were coming and they were saying, you can't know for sure that you're truly saved unless you do X, Y, and Z. Don't forget A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P as well. And everything else. That's the only way that you can truly know. And the reality is, even then, you're not going to really know. And John was saying, no, that is a lie. They are deceivers. You have an anointing that you've received from the Father. It is the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And it is the Holy Spirit in you that bears witness to the truth. You don't need these false teachers giving you works to do and things to believe in order for you to know that you are truly saved. You've been given an anointing by the Father. The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to Christ. This is the context. It's not saying everybody can just go find their own tree and sit under the tree and whatever you come up with is true because that's a lie because truth is not relative truth is absolute and if truth is not absolute then we can be sure of nothing even this earth we're standing on right now no God is absolute his truth is absolute and John is saying you have been given an absolute anointing It is the Holy Spirit. He is the one that ultimately bears witness to the truth. As he abides in us, so we abide in him. And we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And Christ is the truth that is in us. And how does that growth take place? Just like the tree I talked about. Watch a tree grow, watch a child grow. That's how you grow, that's how I grow. It's how we grow in grace, it's how we grow in the truth, it's how we all grow and mature, not only physically and naturally, but this is how we grow and mature spiritually. And God, just like he does with trees and things of this temporal creation, God allows the wind to blow and the rain to come and the storms. And those things actually make us stronger. God allows the storms of life to blow against us, not to destroy us, but to help us to help us grow in the grace and the knowledge of the truth. Then in verse 28, John writes, And now little children abide in him, and he, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now we're going to read this later, but I'm going to read it to you now as a preview. 1 John 4, 17, John writes, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. As Christ is, so are we in this world. 
Paul writes to Titus, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly, worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. His own special people, zealous for good works. Peter writes, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, God's own special people. And what we are supposed to do is show forth the praise of him. Translated out of darkness and into light. Paul writes to Titus that God has redeemed and purified for himself his own special people. And this people are a people that are zealous for good works. Not to assure our salvation, because our good works don't assure our salvation. But zealous for good works because of love. The love that abides in us. The love of God that abides in us. Mothers and fathers, why do you do what you do for your children? You do it because you love them. Why are we zealous for good works? Not because those good works are saving us, but because those good works are consistent with our love for God. If we love God, then we want to live a life and be one who is pleasing to Him in every way. I see this stark contrast when I do premarital counseling versus after many years and I do marriage counseling with people. We have that, that love that motivates us to go out of our way to do things, to say things because of love. This is what the Bible tells us to guard against. Not just to have a good marriage, but remember what what is marriage? Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And this is exactly what Jesus writes in his letter to the church at Ephesus. This I have against you that you have left your first love. In other words, your love has grown cold, indifferent, And God says, guard against that. That your love for him does not grow cold and indifferent. What should motivate us to be zealous for good works? It should be our love for God. And if that love is hot and burning, then we won't have a problem living a life zealous for the things that God loves and that he is zealous for.
John is writing here saying that he will appear. When he appears, let us be those who are confident and not ashamed before him at his coming. He will appear and we all will appear before him. And by his grace, may we be confident and ready By His grace, may we be a people zealous for good works. The last verse in this chapter. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. It's where we're going to go next week. But let me read this. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. It's not our practice of righteousness that makes us righteous. It is the righteousness that God has given to us that makes us practice righteousness, right? You've heard me say this a million times. I'm going to say it again. It wasn't my dog barking that made him a dog. It was my dog being a dog that caused him to bark. Your practicing righteousness doesn't turn you into a righteous person. God has turned you into a righteous person. And because he has, righteousness now becomes the practice of your life. It's like saying, how do you know that's an apple tree? Well, because there's apples hanging on it. Well, how do you know it's not a lemon tree? Well, because there's apples hanging on it. Well, did the apples hanging on that tree make it an apple tree? No, the fact that it was an apple tree made the apples hang on the tree. Do you see the difference? Your practicing righteousness doesn't make you righteous. The fact that God made you righteous causes the fruit of righteousness to hang from your tree. Then he goes on in verse 10 of 1 John 3. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The practice of righteousness is best demonstrated and defined by the life and the love of Jesus Christ. We see this in Christ's obedience to the will of his Father that poured from his love His love for his father, and we see this in his sacrificial love for all those that his father has given to him. Christ's love for the father and his love for those he would redeem culminated in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, thus demonstrating the victory of Christ and his love over sin and over death. In Christ, God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and has given to us victory over sin and death. The love God pours into our heart when we are born again is the very love that we give back to God. And it is the very love that we give to one another. Beloved, let us love one another For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John writes, little children, it is the last hour. Peter says in his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. However you want to think of that, however you want to define that, you appearing to the Lord and the Lord appearing to you, whether it is by death or by his coming, we will all appear before the Lord. And we are charged to know the times. Know the times, know the truth, and know his love. Let his truth, let his love be manifest through you now, right now, in the very time we live in. Today is the day. And let that be manifest in our time that we would be salt that salts and light that is not hidden. And that is what Jesus commands us to be, salt and light. Not salt that's lost its flavor and not lights that are hidden. But salt that is salting and light that is shining. God has made that possible through Jesus Christ and through the very anointing that he has placed in you, his Holy Spirit. So let's get ready to come to the table. You are invited to his table as you trust in him. This is not a table for perfect people. This is a table prepared by one who is perfect and offered to those who are trusting in him because we are imperfect. It is a table of grace. It is a table of his unconditional love. And you come to this table in faith, trusting not in your sufficiency, but in his sufficiency in all things. Christians, come to the table. Let's stand. We are charged to be a people, a people that know the times and a people that know the truth. John wrote that it is the last hour and that has more meaning than we realize. It is a command to discern and to know the times we live in. Your commitment and your urgency in making known the gospel, in being and making disciples of Jesus, and in doing the work of the kingdom should not waver. We are charged 
to continue steadfast in the faith, having done all to stand, to stand therefore, to not only resist the devil and watch him flee, but to assault the gates of hell and know that they will not prevail. We're charged to make disciples of the nations. The gospel of Christ is a heart-transforming, world-changing, empire-conquering, and earth-transforming gospel. But it must begin in your heart. God has given us His gospel to bring eternal renewal, but also to bring destruction to the kingdom of darkness and the works of the devil, to bring eternal renewal to all who come to faith in Christ and ultimately to the earth that we will rule on and live on for all eternity. This is the promise that God has given to us in our kingdom work. This is your time of visitation on this earth. God has saved you and made you a new creation. He has made you a member of His body, of His church. He has filled you with His Holy Spirit. He has given you His gospel to make a difference in this world now. So that now, in our time, we would see His kingdom come and His will be done on earth, in our hearts, in our lives and in those around us, even as it is in heaven. That is good news. Don't forget it. Amen.